Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. I dag skal I møde en helt fantastisk kvinde. Hun er baronesse og hedder Minus Shafik. Minus Shafik er født i Alexandria, Ægypten, men blev tvunget til at flygte på grund af politisk turbulent i landet sammen med sin familie til Georgia, hvor hun så voksede op og gik i skole i 60'erne og oplevede segregation, raseadskillelse mellem sorte og hvide. Senere kom hun til Storbritannien, hvor hun blev studerende på London School of Economics, og derfra indledte hun det, som de i Dagbladet Børsen kalder for en kometagtig karriere. Hun blev den første kvindelige vicepræsident for Verdensbanken. Siden blev hun managing director i IMF, den internationale valutafond, og hun fik en meget høj position i Bank of England. Nu er Minus Shafik blevet director of London School of Economics, det er en post, hvor hun efterfølger tænkere som William Beveridge, der grundlagde den britiske velfærdsstat, og Anthony Giddens, der lavede den tredje vej. Good evening to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially good evening to you, Baroness Shafik. Thank you so very much for being with us from London. It's a pleasure, Rune. Very nice to be here. Og så har Minus Shafik skrevet en ny bog, som hedder What We Owe Each Other, som er intet mindre end forsøg på at lave en ny social kontrakt til en verden, som er rystet af valget af Donald Trump og Brexit. God fornøjelse. First, I want to ask you about London School of Economics, because we know London School of Economics here in Denmark as this just brilliant intellectual place of Hayek, Beveridge and, and Anthony Giddens, of course, and i would recommend all our viewers tonight to follow the public lectures of London School of Economics because that's just a way to follow international ideas. And you're the director of London School of Economics. What's your personal relation to that institution? Well, I actually studied at the school uh, and did my master's degree in economics at the LSE. And it was a transformative experience for me. It's um, probably the most international uh major university in the world, 70% international students, 30% from the UK. It's also the top social science institution in Europe. And so you have fantastic uh, students from all over Europe. And for me personally, it was the most global environment I had ever been in. And now, so you've returned as a director for this wonderful institution and this global environment at a time when on the one hand, there's a university's are highly prestigious and uh, there's a lot of cultural capital connected to universities, especially here during COVID-19. We're really depending on the experts. On the other hand, it seems like universities and expertise, knowledge, science is being challenged. How do you see uh, the responsibility and the role of elite universities in today's world? Well, you know, I like to say that the London School of Economics is an elite institution, but it's not elitist. And I think that's the real challenge for universities today is how to increase access to students from all different backgrounds, but also how to share our ideas to a much wider audience so that we can shape public debate. But how do you work today to to make legitimacy about science and about, uh, because, you know, we all need elite institutions. We all need elite knowledge. We all need Research, that's part of our social fabric. That's part of our civilization. That's how 
we bring we bring our our societies forward and especially here during covid-19 it's obvious to to anyone how how do you work to make legitimacy around science Hmm. Well, I think actually you you mentioned COVID-19, and I think it's been incredibly healthy for the public to see scientists arguing with each other. Good science, good research is that it's based on data, people have to share their data, and that it's subjected to peer review, that, that you can't, you can, it's not just some random opinion, but actually other scientists have to be able to get the same results with that research, with that, with that data. And that rigor around scientific debate, I think has been something we've all benefited from in the last year. And I think will add to the credibility of science and research. And I think that, I think that's a very positive take that I find very inspiring because In the beginning, also here in Denmark, we say, well, well the experts are back. The experts are back. Now we, we they reclaim their authority. <laughs> and, then, and then half a year later, well, the experts were wrong. We don't believe them anyway. And I think this whole debate about truth and believe in science, it's kind of they adopted the populist stance and then reversed it, that experts are elitist. And they said, on the other hand, no, we are the truth and we know what is truth, which is actually not a very scientific approach. So I think your way of putting it is, 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 is very positive. And I think you're right that people are learning that experts do not have the definite truth. They're engaging in a common investigation of the world at the highest level. And, 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 and they're seeking to challenge assumption. And I think that's a very good point. There's also a lot of debate here in Denmark and especially in the US. And you know, we're all cultural Americans. So we all follow what's going on in, in America a lot closer than what's going on in the rest of Europe. But the UK, we, we follow a lot, a lot as well. But there's been a lot of debate in the American universities about the entire Western canon and, and mm -hmm. this history of ideas that was built by white males. And on the one hand, I think it's just a very positive thing that you critically investigate the knowledge that you inherited. On the other hand, you have a lot of people saying, well, there are problems of free speech in, in universities. And how, how do you see this challenge? Yeah, well, I agree with you that it's healthy that we look at history again, that we debate and don't take for granted ideas that have been around for a very long time. And I think the debate about decolonizing the curriculum, diversifying the curriculum is both about who we study and what we study. I I don't think it's healthy to try and cancel or delete parts of history, but I think it's very important to add new perspectives. Um, you know, someone gave an example in the UK in Parliament Square, there's a statue of Churchill. You know, it's not that we should take the Churchill statue down, but we have added statues of Mandela and Gandhi and Millicent Fawcett who fought for women's right to vote. And so it's really an issue of adding to history and our knowledge, not denying parts of it. And you're you're now the director of this wonderful full institution. And if you look at your predecessors, some of them have really with their ideas and their research changed the world basically. And they've added, you know, groundbreaking political ideas. William Beveridge pretty much, i don't know if that's correct, but I have the I have the sense that that he was very instrumental for building the welfare state in in in, in in Great Britain and and even for a progressive newspaper we do recognize the influence of Friedrich Hayek and of course Anthony Giddens was very important for 
for the, for the third way. How do you see your your political role? Yes. Well, I mean, as you say, the LSE has a long tradition of thinking about the relationship between the economy and society. And it was originally set up by the Fabians to, to change the world. And I think for me, there is that incredible tradition of William Beveridge, who was one of my predecessors, who wrote this report in 1942 after the war, which recommended the creation of the National Health Service, created modern unemployment insurance and pensions. It was radically revolutionary at the time and didn't just affect the UK, but had huge influence across Europe in the developing world. And like that time, I and as you said, Hayek too influenced Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and really was the beginning of the free market liberal revolution followed by Tony Gibbons, who wrote this book called The Third Way, which tried to find a balance between the interventionist state of beverage and the kind of liberal free market views of Hayek. And The Third Way influenced Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Tabo Mbeki, Gerhard Schroeder, a huge number of kind of social democratic politicians. I think they lost credibility after the 2008 financial crisis. And I think we're at a moment now where we need a new paradigm. And I'm hoping that my book can be a small contribution to thinking about what a new paradigm for our societies can be. And, and the reason why I ask you and compare it to your predecessors is because this is an enormously ambitious book. Really, it's addressing a new paradigm from the cradle to the grave, from bringing up children to looking at the work span of 60, 70 years, something I never imagined before I read it in In, in your book, what kind of challenge that is for education and, and what kind of challenge that is for divisions in, in society as well. It's an enormously ambitious book. I don't know how you manage to process all that knowledge and formulate into something that's really readable. And I read it in a wonderful afternoon this this uh, this Saturday. I didn't do anything else that afternoon. I should, I should say that. It's But but it's really, really, it's it's well-written and well thought, but it's also very, very ambitious. How, how do you see this, this new paradigm emerging? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you found the book readable. It was, um, you know, my ambition, I was worried about it being overambitious to try and look at how our societies organize everything from raising children to caring for the elderly. But I thought by making it from cradle to grave, it would help people identify with it because those are the things we all experience, childhood, education, work, and old age. And, uh, and I hope I was able to digest a huge amount of knowledge, not just from me, but from my colleagues at the LSE and from all over the world to help people imagine a new possibility. You know, I originally started writing the book after 2016, or at least thinking about the issues after 2016. And that was the year when we had Brexit, we had Trump, we had populist politicians being elected around the world. And there was a deep sense of anger in politics everywhere. Denmark too, you saw the rise of populist kind of ideas in, in, polit in, in politics. And I wanted to understand why are people so angry? And I increasingly came to the view that they're angry because they feel that the social contract in their society denied them both security and opportunity, that they felt they hadn't been given a fair chance. Thinking about the social contract was a very good way to understand why people were disappointed and thinking about a new social contract might provide the answers to happier and more, and more healthier societies.
being a leader of, of an institution like the LSE, uh, do you feel ideologically free to write whatever you think is right? Because this is also a period when people are saying, well, the universities are too liberal or they're too old progressives and why aren't conservatives allowed to talk? And, and, and what is it like to write a political book at this point of time? Yes, it's a good question. Um, you know, I want to be put into a particular box uh, because I wanted readers from all perspectives to, to read this book. Um, so I hope that uh, a progressive reader would read it and think, yeah, these are there's some relevant ideas here. And also someone from a conservative background would read it and see that there are relevant ideas. I also try really hard, and it partly reflects my own professional background, having worked in international development and traveled to 100 countries, uh, to, to draw examples from all over the world. And I think sometimes, you know, when we have a problem in our own country, it, we're stuck. And yet, if you look up and see how other countries have solved these problems, you can often find new and creative solutions. So I hope I was successful in avoiding being put in a particular political box. Oh, oh, definitely. And you didn't have all the ritual references like Trump is awful and we must uh, and we must you, you don't have you don't have ideological. You you mentioned PKT, for instance, but that's for one basic proposal from him. But it's not like you feel here comes the socialist canon or here comes the yeah. third way. way canon. One thing that I find was very inspiring about the book is that this was not just a book about Western societies. You actually show how it's done in other societies. And it's something on a principle level, we do not want to be colonialist. We do not want to seem superior. We all want to be open, but there's very, very little real curiosity about non-Western societies and how they can contribute to our societies. I wonder if, if was that an explicit ambition for you? Well, it was also because I, I worked in many of these countries for many years when I was at the World Bank, when I was at the Department for International Development, when I was at the IMF. And so I saw how you can find solutions elsewhere. And, you know, many of them are, you know, the pandemic has been a really good example where we've seen very different approaches to dealing with the pandemic in Asian societies, say, relative to Western societies. People are willing to accept greater restrictions on their freedoms in many countries than in, say, the United States. And that had very different consequences. Uh, and so I do think that looking around the world for solutions uh, will result in at least an awareness of the, the constraints of our own. Uh, you know, another really good example is how it's what's happened to families. You know, multi-generational mm -hmm. families uh, is something we associate with traditional societies in developing countries. Now, many young people are returning home uh, in Western societies because they can't afford housing. And so we're rediscovering multi-generational households in, uh, in Europe, for example, where something like a third of families have young adults now living back at home. So again, lessons to be learned from elsewhere. And I think that's very inspiring also because we must look beyond the West now in our societies. You know, we we must we must try to learn from from other societies, but we must also learn the fact that we're not the destination of other people's histories. That we're not the endpoint of modernity. And they, if they succeed with their reforms and, and their economic progress, they will end up 
like like us. So, so I felt that that was another way of engaging with the position of the Western countries in the 21st century. I'm always very curious when I read about social contracts. I love the word social contracts. And whenever people say social contracts, say, yeah, let's do it. Let's negotiate it right now. But, <laughs> and, and, I th and I think historically in Danish society, I know who would be negotiating uh, the contract. You would have workers represented, you'd have employers represented, you'd have very strong representative parties, you'd have institutions representing all, all parts of the population. But today, and, and you, 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 you define uh, the social contract as something that is also part of civil society. It's not just public institutions, it's also norms, it's also ways of living together. And I was wondering, who, who do you actually imagine negotiating the social contract basically today? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, in many ways, you're lucky in Denmark because you do have a structure for negotiating the social contract. Most countries don't have that. I think most countries negotiate their social contract through whatever political process they have in place. And as a result, you get very different outcomes. Interestingly, in political systems that have kind of winner-takes-all politics, yeah. like the US and the UK, you end up getting social contracts very focused on the majority needs. And minorities can often be left behind. In countries that have proportional representation, you tend to get more generous social contracts because coalition government means you have to look after everyone to maintain the coalition. In authoritarian countries where you have dictators with a handful of cronies around them, you tend to get dreadful social contracts because they feel very little need to look after the vast majority of the population. So it's the nature of the political system and political process that is the mechanism for negotiating social contracts. You put the point in the book as well that in the electoral systems that you have in the UK, the, the first past the post, you don't have a presidential democracy like the two in the US. It's like they have the worst of the worst with both the presidential systems. The worst of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes. So so when, when you look at, at, at these great democratic disruptions that we... From our, we consider Brexit a great democratic disruption. I know you do too, and you've been, you've been very outspoken about it. How much is that actually explained by the political systems that they're not able to articulate the conflicts in society anymore? Yes. Well, I, I, you know, I think part of the challenge is that democratic politics is is very short termist and many of the big issues facing the social contract are very long-term. If you look at what are the big drivers of current tensions in our social contract, they have to do with the changing role of women and the fact that women now working can no longer take care of the young and the old for free anymore. They have to do with big changes in technology which are playing out in our economies over many years. They have to do with climate change and the intergenerational injustice of what's happening with climate change. And they have to do with aging, which is, again, it's a slow moving crisis. Um, and politics tends to respond to short term crises, not these big long term forces. Uh, and I'm, I think that is one thing that we need to encourage to change is if our politics are going to deal with these big long term forces, we need to have our politicians focus on them. I think one thing I'd say that makes me hopeful is that some recent research we've done at the LSE shows 
looks at what makes people vote for different politicians. And politicians tend to think that people vote their pocketbook, that if GDP increases during my tenure, people will reelect me. Actually, what we found at the LSE is that what determines whether people vote for someone again is whether their well-being improved during their tenure. And that well-being means my mental and physical health, the quality of my relationships and my sense of community, and do I have meaningful work? And so I think we need to get that message out to politicians that if you want to be re-elected, improve people's well-being. That's much more important than GDP. And do you see in this this COVID, to a certain extent, it has forced us to think think in the very short term about survival now, but also forced us to negotiate our responsibilities and obligations towards one another. I think it is quite moving, actually, that we have a generation of young people that that have stayed home for a year. I have two two teenagers at home. They've sacrificed a lot, and they've done that voluntarily to the elderly, to the to the sick, to those who are most in need of, of, of medical attention. Do you see in this COVID experience, which I know plays out differently in different countries, a kind of potential for grounding a new social contract? I, I Yes, I completely agree with you. I also have two teenagers at home who feel like they've <laughs> sacrificed a lot for us. I think, you know, in many ways, there's some parallels with what happened with beverage after World War II, where you had many different people serving in the trenches together and sacrificing together. And that created a sense of social solidarity. It's interesting, I've I've seen some polling done in about 24 countries, pre-COVID and post-COVID. And you see a couple of trends. One, people are more afraid and they feel more let down by society. On the other hand, because they've been deprived of human contact, they value community and solidarity and equality more. And I think if we can tap into that sentiment, that sense of we really need each other uh, and we owe each other more, I think there is an opportunity for a better social contract. You write a a lot about climate change in the book and you have a very, very convincing argument in favor of a carbon tax, something that we've been writing a lot about in, in, in this newspaper. But how do you see the, this climate change problem in, in relation to the social contract? Because it seems with the COVID-19, we asked the young to give up something for the elderly. And with the climate change, we need the other way around. Absolutely. So I think climate change is a really good example of the intergenerational social contract. I think most of us would agree that we should at least leave the next generation as well off as we were, and it preferably better off than we were. And when I look at the current intergenerational social contract, I think we're not doing right by the by the young generation for three reasons. One, uh, their income prospects are not as good as ours were. You know, in every advanced economy today, if you ask people, will your children be better off than you? The answer is no. It's very different in the developing world where most parents think their children will be better off than them. But in the advanced world, that's not the case. Second, we're leaving this generation quite a big legacy of debt, both from the 2008 financial crisis and from the COVID crisis. And third, we're leaving them an environment that is much diminished from the one we inherited. How do we make up for that? Well, I think we have to improve their employment prospects, and that includes investing even more in this generation's education, including lifelong learning. 
Second, I think we need to sort out at least as much of the debt as we can in our lifetimes. And one way of doing that is working longer. I think older people will have to work longer so that this younger generation will not have to carry the burden of our pensions, old age care and healthcare. And the third thing we can do is fix the, fix the planet by dealing with climate change and investing more in conservation and biodiversity so we can at least compensate them for a bit of the environmental damage that we've done. It seems that there are two ways of looking at climate change. If you look at the nature, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And we meet people who say, well, I can't stand listening to the evening news anymore because I'm always afraid there's a new report and it's worse than the experts expected. And it's been like that for 20 years. And we have young people saying, well, you knew about climate change when James Hansen came to Congress in, yeah. in the 80s. And you knew about climate change when you held the Rio summit and you didn't act. So that's one way that nature is getting worse and worse. And, and we've been passive for too long. The other way of looking at it is, is see, well, well, things are really moving now. You have this huge budget from, from the European Union. You see Joe Biden proposing something that's very, very ambitious. I don't know if he will get it through Congress. And it seems to me that leading up to the Glasgow summit, that, that there's a, a lot of green initiative going on in, in, in the UK that's a minor green awakening. Which one of the two perspectives do you prefer? I agree with you. I think this is a political moment for climate change. And to be honest, a lot of it, I give credit to young people for making such a fuss and insisting on putting this on the political agenda. I think also we've seen a big shift in among business leaders. It is rare these days to find a CEO who's not who's not committed to sustainability. Uh, and if they are not committed, they keep their mouth shut <laughs> because both their shareholders and their investors and their bankers will not be impressed. Um, and I think we have actually started to experience climate change as citizens in most countries, be it flooding, be it droughts, be it unusual weather patterns. And I think that ex real lived experience is changing the views of most citizens. So I agree with you. I think it is a moment when we, when we could see real action. I think the question is whether we'll do enough quickly enough. I think things will happen, but will it be enough? And that's the challenge. Another contract that's being negotiated is between business and society. These mm. years, you know, there's this old phrase, I don't know, remember it was Milton Friedman who said that the only obligation of business was to produce value for their stockholder and it seems to be changing and you mentioned that in your book as well that that there's a new that that businesses are taking on more social responsibility of course from a newspaper point of view well they're just hypocrites they're not doing it should, should we uh, you know blackrock is proposing uh, that, that they won't invest that they won't invest in fossil fuels anymore should we believe them should we believe that 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 things are really changing or are they just fighting for legitimacy after a financial crisis? Well, I think that it's great that there have been some corporate leaders who have been outspoken about the need for environmental, social and governance reforms. And I think it's great that many investors and asset managers are also saying that it's important. But I, I tend to agree with you that, you know, Warm words and declarations and voluntary action are not enough. I think we do need legal changes. I think we need to require firms to disclose their environmental impacts. I think we need to require 
firms who have flexible workers to give those workers benefits by legal mandate. Uh, I think there are ways that we can uh, impose a carbon tax that would then change the incentive structures that companies are facing in terms of uh, in terms of carbon emissions. So I think it's great that it, the, the momentum is there politically, but I think we need legal reforms, tax changes, legislative changes to actually have a real impact and create a level playing field. It's not okay that a few good corporate citizens are doing well and then having to compete with a bunch of companies who are not behaving uh, to the same standard. So it's only legislative and legal changes that will create a level playing field for everyone. Amen to that. I want to change focus a little bit to education because you seem to me to be a huge optimist in education, a firm believer in institutions and and. And, uh, and and education, and education is definitely needed for the 21st century if people are working 60 or 70 years. But I, I never thought of that before. Do you think that if kids growing up now will be 100 years, that the way we think of life now is, is viable? Mm. That first I go to school for maybe 10, 15 years, and then I work for 50 years. Or should we think I work 15 years, I go back to school five years, how should we imagine this process? I'm I'm 47 and I don't feel ready to go back to school. So it's very difficult. <laughs> it is. It will require a big change in the way we think about education and work. The old model was, as you said, you go to school from about age six to about your early 20s. And then the education you get then is enough to last you for your career until you retire. I think that model is dead. Uh both because technology is changing jobs so frequently uh, and people will have to change jobs more often and people will have to work much longer. And I think we need to think about education as something that you do throughout your life. And the educational system has to change to make that easy for you. So you might not want to take three years off now to go to university. Uh, But if there were some modular courses and things you could do over the weekends, and maybe you took three months off at one point uh, to retool and reskill for a new job, I think we need to support people. Both the system needs to enable that more modular approach to education, and we need to support them financially. So one of the ideas in the book is that every 18-year-old should get an allowance for their life of, let's call it, 40,000 euros uh, so that they can finance their education throughout their lives to reskill and retool. I think the other thing that's really different is we have to stop thinking of our careers as climbing a ladder in a linear way. I often tell students at the LSE to think about their careers more like climbing a tree. So when you climb a tree, you don't go straight up. You sometimes have to go off on the side and you go on a branch and then you see a new vista and a new opportunity and then you take another branch. And just as you go up like climbing a tree, we have to come down like climbing a tree. You don't get to the top Mm. of the ladder and then jump. You have to climb down slowly and think about retirement as a transition through part-time work uh, and then eventually moving to retirement. I think there's are may seem radical now, but I think in 10 or 20 years, I think more and more people will be thinking about their professional lives and their education in that way. And I think they, they are, I should say, we will be more open to thinking about that when we think of how many years are ahead of, of people actually just 
working. But there's another very important point in your book, which is that those who do well in school, they tend to enjoy going back to school. They tend to take it. But those who did not enjoy going to school, you can give them an allowance or you can give them access, but they're not taking it. So it seems to me that those education was a vehicle of social equality in the 20th century. It was a vehicle of social mobility. It seems in the 21st century, education is also driving us apart and creating new divisions in society. And if we are depending on people being able to go back to school when they're 40, when they're 50, they're 60, will that not escalate those conflicts? Yeah. There is a real risk unless the education system changes to provide learning opportunities for people that may look different than what we currently think of as school. Uh, what the research shows around what are called active labor market policies, which Denmark is better than most countries in, uh, is, is that the way you teach adults uh, is very different than the way you teach young people. There's actually a separate word for it. You know, when we talk about young people, we talk about pedagogy. Yes. When we talk about adults, we talk about andragogy because leading adults is very different. They uh, don't want to be lectured to. They only want, they want to learn things that are they feel are going to be relevant to their lives. They learn better through experience rather than through book learning. And I think we need to be thinking about how to develop new models of learning that will suit uh, adult learners and also learners who haven't gone to university before. And so we'll want to, we'll want to learn new skills in, in very different ways. Yes, because it seems to me to be one of the most difficult contracts of the 21st century between those urban, well-educated in the cities and those who are not part of that life. And you can call the somewheres or the anywheres. But you see that who voted Brexit, who voted to stay in the European Union, who voted Trump. The education cleavage has become a fundamental division. How dangerous is that the division in our societies, in your view? Yeah, well, I think it's that point, it's that combination of the education division and what technology has done to the labor markets. Basically, labor markets as a result of globalization reward the highly educated a lot and reward those without much education very poorly. And that's why we've seen this growing inequality in many countries. And education is the fault line. I think part of the answer has to be to equalize access to educational opportunities. And for me, in the book, I talk about how the shape of the educational system needs to change. We need to do much more very early and much more later. The very early is really important for social mobility because it's actually in the first thousand days of life that your brain is developed. And if those first thousand days don't go well, even if you go to the best school possible, you'll never catch up with someone who's had a better start to life. And so for me, I think interventions, either public or supporting better parenting that are around nutrition and mental stimulation at the beginning of life is the most important thing for equalizing educational outcomes from the start and incredibly cost-effective. I mean, I'll just give you a small example in Jamaica. Uh, Children who were visited by a health worker once a week when they were infants and the parents were taught how to feed them well and play with them well. 
those children earned 42% more 20 years later than children who didn't get a visit. Huge increase in their income prospects. And so I think those early interventions are the way that we're going to be able to close that educational divide. But does that also require a new political understanding of the importance of investment in education, not just what they call R&D today, not just the growth, but, but education in a very, very broad sense and understanding that that is the, a public responsibility. And I, I don't see that understanding a lot of places, the way you talk about education, which is very convincing in the book, that, that, that it's a much larger effort that requires a new political consensus. Absolutely. I mean, just take those first thousand days of life. We don't normally think of that as part of social policy. That's sort of something that parents are responsible for. Families yeah. are supposed to look <laughs> after young children. But actually, whether those parents do it well or not has huge consequences for society. And so supporting parents or providing social infrastructure of early years education, which could be paid for by the state, is really important for society as a whole. And if you don't act then, those children will become unemployed, they'll be dependent on welfare, they'll be unhealthy, they'll commit crimes. You know, the, the consequences are very severe for society as a whole. So we should care about those early years. And similarly, you know, if, if people are given opportunities to retool and reskill later in life, They'll contribute taxes, they'll be better citizens, they'll retire later, they'll be healthier. And so, again, all of those benefits uh, are ones that we all benefit from. And so a really important message of the book is we owe each other more. We only have five minutes left, unfortunately. So I want to jump a little bit and ask you about globalization, because you've been, you've been vice president of the World Bank and you've been in in the IMF, and you've been part of these institutions that define globalization, or at least as we understood globalization. And for decades, they were globalization was bringing prosperity and development, and people were quite optimistic about it. And there was even kind of an ethic, you don't, don't be a protectionist. That was all about <laughs> like being a nationalist. So there was an ethic, and, and then it turned around all of a sudden, and, and now, Both the left and the right are suggesting protectionism. And neoliberalism is a bad word on the left and on the right in, 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 in America. Haven't been part of that process from the inside. Do you think there was something that should have been done in a different way? Yes, definitely. So I think globalization did a, did a fantastic job of making markets more efficient, of lifting millions and millions of people out of poverty and raising living standards for many, many people. And that was a success. But I think the social contract underpinning globalization failed. And that's why we see the divisions that we see in so many countries today. I think if we had a better social contract, which protected people from the shocks that inevitably arise from globalization, there would be more support for it because the efficiency gains are real and the flexibility and the global supply chains all make globalization work, produce huge amounts of economic wealth. The problem is, is that if people don't feel they're getting any benefits from that increase in economic wealth, they're not going to support it. But I guess what I would argue is that 
what we need is a social contract that means that if you lose your job because of globalization, you will get reskilled, you will get retraining, you will be able to find another job. Society will support you through that shock. In many countries, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, and in many countries, take the US, for example, which is an extreme case. When, the U, when, when China sort of integrated into the global market and when the US signed the NAFTA agreement, they put in place a program which was supposed to help workers who lost their jobs because of that reskill and retool. And it had, on paper, it looked perfectly sensible. Retraining, relocation grants if you wanted to move to another city to find a job, et cetera, wage subsidies. But in practice, there wasn't enough money put into the program and it was very difficult to access. And so instead, you got the Rust Belt in the center of the United States and the huge backlash of working class voters against globalizations and calls for protectionism. So I think for me, it's putting in place programs like that. If you're a more open economy, you need more social protection. You need a better safety net. Otherwise, your society will be buffeted by global economic shocks. And when you look at what's going on with the European Union, the way they're they're investing at, at another scale, I know it's only one and a half percent of the GDP, but still, it's another scale. And if you see uh, what Joe Biden is proposing in America, do you think we're actually witnessing a shift in paradigms? Not just that the old one doesn't work anymore, but do you see new policies being developed and put in charge that could inspire us to think that we're actually that we may be part of a new beginning. Yeah. Well, I agree. I think this is a, a critical juncture. I think this is a moment when, you know, the pandemic made governments do things no one ever thought possible. Paying the wages of huge proportion of workers who were couldn't go to work anymore because of lockdown. Uh, paying cash transfers directly to households uh, so that they could support themselves. Uh, you know, These, these massive changes to support firms, to keep them afloat during the pandemic. You know, in many ways, the state is back uh, and, and, and people have seen what the state can do. And they also, I think citizens want protection from big shocks like pandemics. Now, we can't obviously sustain what the state is currently doing now. That doesn't make sense for the long term. <laughs> But there is a reordering of society that I think could happen. And I'm hoping that some of the ideas in my book give us an idea of what that reordering could look like and how we could get a much better balance of both security for all, but also opportunity for all. And I think if we if we do that, we could have a social contract where we get the efficiency gains and benefits from globalization and capitalism, but a much better system of social cohesion and solidarity that means all of us feel that our well-being is better. Well, thank you very much. And I want to compliment your book for being an economist who points to factors that are not economical and that you have problems that are created by certain financial order, certain economic policies. And then you're actually addressing something a lot wider and that gives us a sense of how much is at stake but also of how much could be done at this very special moment thank you for inspiring us and thank you for your book and thank you for everything you're doing at the london school of economics thank you real pleasure to talk to you and uh and i'm so glad you enjoyed the book 
Det var min samtale med den første bagnæsse, vi har haft i langsomme samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Minus Shafik. I næste uge, der taler vi med intet mindre end en Nobelprismodtager i økonomi. Det er den fransk-amerikanske økonom Esther Duflo, der i 2019 fik Nobelprisen for sit arbejde med at skabe en økonomi, der løfter verdens fattige. Lyt rigtig godt med i næste uge. Jeg lover, det bliver på et højt niveau, og vi får et indblik i økonomien, som vi ikke har haft før her i Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen.